What is up? This is Evan Lovett, and thanks for tuning in to my podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett, an Odyssey original brought to you by yours truly, your host, Evan Lovett, where you may know me from my social media page, LA In a Minute. I'd love to invite you along for a personal and intimate ride as I share interesting facts about all sorts of things you didn't know that you needed to know. Be entertained and informed as I bring you into my mind to see the world through my lens. There's history everywhere, as long as you know where to look. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 32. And 32 is a pretty significant number to me. And it's a significant number in Los Angeles, at least sports history. We're talking Sandy Koufax, Magic Johnson, Marcus Allen, all L.A. legends that wore number 32. And hopefully this episode is going to be an L.A. legend as well. So thank you for listening. I'm legit excited about this one. I want to jump right into the rundown. We're talking about the great cyber attack that occurred and is still ongoing in L.A.'s backyard. And to call this thing a hack would be to understate the ongoing chaos. This thing is affecting millions of people and billions of dollars, but it's not getting the attention that I think it deserves. So I want to dig deep into what exactly is going on in Las Vegas and how a hacker from Los Angeles may have paved the way for a cyber attack of this magnitude. Wait, a hacker from Los Angeles? Yeah, I'm talking about the world's most famous hacker who was atop the FBI's most wanted list for years after hacking into major corporations and going on the run. Yeah, he was born and raised and honed his skills right here in Los Angeles. I'll tell you about that. That's a really fun anecdote, and it plays into what we're talking about. And as always, we're going to get into your one thing to do in L.A. this week, and it's appropriate. It's pretty much the one thing you could do to guarantee that you won't be hacked. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. All right. We start with something that happened in L.A. this week. MGM Resorts International was hacked. MGM Resorts has 31 properties around the world, including more than a dozen in the Las Vegas Strip. And I said Los Angeles because the Las Vegas Strip is absolutely part of the greater Los Angeles region. I'm going to get into that. But MGM Resorts, we're talking Bellagio, Aria, Mandalay Bay, the Cosmo, my second home, Excalibur, and MGM Grand Just Some of the names, some of the hotels that were struck by hackers on Sunday morning, September 11th. And listen to this. <laughs> Not only were the doors to the hotel rooms unusable slot machines were down ATMs were inoperable elevators were out of order parking lots all automated was out of order and customers had to wait hours to check into rooms restaurants and bars were cash only and with ATMs down how do you think that went I mean even the websites were down for every hotel and for MGM resorts Reservations were down. And let me just repeat that check-in. Check-in lines at Bellagio were three hours long. And Excalibur, they were four hours long. 
But in addition to the damage done to one of the world's largest hotel groups, consumers were affected by breaches of data that included their credit card. And consumers are still reporting ghost charges to their cards, with many of those outcomes TBD. But what about employees? I mean, that's not an easy gig to deal with. You've been to Vegas. If you're listening to this podcast, you've definitely been to Vegas. It's tough to be an employee sometimes under the best of circumstances. Can you imagine trying to calm down customers that have been waiting more than three and a half hours to check into their room who can't even get into their own room without being accompanied with a physical room key? Well, what about those employees? Well, there were even fears of a payroll snafu. It's all it's all automated now. Hack the system, hack the system. No, that didn't materialize fully. People did get paid. Look, Vegas, I'll get into this. Vegas is Vegas still. Paper checks had to be cut and some employees didn't get theirs till the end of payday. Imagine on a Friday, right? As banks are closing. This is old school 1991 style. You got to go cash your paycheck. That's usually direct deposit. I mean, nobody's getting off scot-free. This is affecting a lot of people here. And MGM is a corporation. They're losing four to $8 million per day as the stock price continues to plummet. I mean, MGM has properties from Vegas to Massachusetts, Mississippi, Maryland, Michigan, any state with an M, Ohio, New Jersey, China, Japan. All right. All right, Ev. Yeah, we get it. There's a hack. What does this have to do with L.A.? Everything. Las Vegas has everything to do with Los Angeles. One of my favorite episodes of In a Minute with Evan Levitt was episode two, where I got into the history of Vegas, a town that could not exist without Los Angeles. And since those days in the early 20th century as a dusty, vice-ridden outpost for mostly male workers on the Hoover Dam, mostly from L.A., to its days today is the number one tourist destination for men, women, and children. Yes, families from Los Angeles. The history of Vegas has been inextricably linked to L.A. You want more? Get this. 1.8 million people per year fly from L.A. to Vegas. And more than three times that number drive. We are literally talking about L.A.'s backyard. And according to the DMV, more than 330,000 people moved from Los Angeles to Las Vegas in the last five years. This is an L.A. story, my friends. Very much so. So how did the hack occur? <laughs> now this, honestly, this is hilarious. Well, it would be if it wasn't so impactful. A group called ALPHV. I guess you'd say Alf V. I don't know how the hackers work. Do they want you to pronounce it as a word? It's a ransomware group. All they did to compromise MGM Resorts, a multi, multi-billion dollar company, was to hop on LinkedIn, find an employee, and then call the help desk. They had a 10-minute conversation with the help desk, and the hack ensued. A company valued at $33 billion was defeated by a 10-minute conversation. Now, they're financially motivated, this hacking group. 
They claimed the hack in a post this week, and they warned MGM of further attacks if it didn't strike a deal, but it's unclear how much money they wanted for ransom. And MGM hasn't commented on the statement or the hack, but they did acknowledge dealing with the cybersecurity issue. <laughs> yeah, just a little issue, guys. I mean, you should see some of the email. I'll post this stuff. You should, I have posted some of this stuff on the LA in a minute, but I'll post it again. You should see some of the tweets they sent out. They're aware and they're working on, oh, we thank our employees. Very tight-lipped, very classic Vegas hush-hush. And to me, I kind of think that that's where this, I'm not going to call it a media blackout. Media's covering it. But I think this should be a much huger story because this affects all of us. I'm Not even just from the Vegas LA perspective, but this, this is serious. This is the tip of the iceberg. But they're very tight-lipped. And the thing is, this isn't just MGM, even in Vegas. The same hackers breached Caesars. Yes, Caesars Entertainment, Caesars Palace. Sometime around a month ago. And that resulted in a, at that point, hush-hush payment of anywhere from 15 to 30 million, depending on where you read the number. You know I like to source stuff, but Caesars ain't about to put that out publicly until they have to. But they paid, let's call it 30 million, just to have the hackers go away. And in retrospect, seeing the chaos at MGM, maybe that was the right decision. But those same group of hackers, it continues. They broke into the systems of three other companies in the manufacturing, retail, and technology space. I mean, you want to know why this is a bigger concern? And again, I'm not the media media guy. I'm a pro media guy. You know this. But I can't believe the media isn't really like making this the huge issue that I think it is. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's a crazy issue. Look at this list of companies. I'm circling back on that. Look at this list of companies that have had cyber attacks, debilitating cyber attacks just in the last few months. Aside from MGM and Caesars, we're talking about T-Mobile, Yum Brands, Chick-fil-A was down for a period. Activision, Norton LifeLock. You want to talk about the irony in that one, protecting your identity hacked. And this week, Clorox was the victim of a cyber attack. A bleach company. How, how do you hack a company that makes bleach? I'll tell you how. And this is part of what these hacks are. It isn't just this nebulous thing. What are we talking about? Oh, data. I don't understand data and the cloud. And where do they even hack? How does this affect me? Listen to this. Clorox recently announced that its systems were breached by hackers. And when they learned of the attacks, they took all the systems offline and called the cops and called the FBI. And now Clorox is a producer of bleach and pine saw. Those are like its two biggest, but a ton of household items. They already say they don't have an estimate of when they'll be able to resume full operations. But, but what the hack was, was a, quote, wide-scale disruption to all operations, meaning, and you know, everything's automated now. Everything's online. All computer systems, like, I mean, the best analogy I could make is if somebody hacked my phone and took me to, I wouldn't know what to do. My life would stop. So, I mean, this is a company, a corporation, right? And so while they're trying to get this disruption fixed of their entire operation, the companies had to go manual. And this is representative of all these companies I named. This is just the most recent, the Clorox one. The company had to scale back ordering, processing, 
making fewer products. Fewer products are making their way onto shelves. So, I mean, these are big deals. And and here's my concern. Okay, well, what is this about Clorox? I thought we were talking about Vegas. No, this is about hacking because this can happen to any company, Los Angeles or otherwise. And again, I don't have the answer. There's some cybersecurity stuff, but it's real. Luckily, this isn't at this point personal violence or anything like that when it's a corporation it's tougher to be sympathetic i get it but it's a big deal so keep your eyes open and your information safe and don't answer a random message on linkedin or anywhere probably for that matter you can i can we all can be victims of a cyber attack because hacking did start in los angeles wait what oh now do i have your attention that's right. We owe all of this hacking chaos to a man named Kevin Mitnick. Kevin Mitnick, who was born in Van Nuys, same place I was born, attended James Monroe High School in Sepulveda, started hacking in 1978, and he was one of the first hackers ever thrown in jail. In fact, he is known is the most famous hacker ever. Let me tell you this story. Because honestly, that's a good one. So Kevin, when he was a kid, he was known to be a smart kid and developed a passion for electronics at a young age. And this is 70s, so electronics means a lot different than it does now, but it's maybe even cooler. By the age of 12, Kevin Mitnick figured out how to freely ride the bus using a punch card and blank tickets fished from a dumpster. Then some kind of contraption to, to fool the bus punch card reader. In high school, he developed an obsession with the inner workings of switches and circuits of telephone companies. And he'd pull pranks. Pranks they were back then. There's no hacking. It wasn't even a thing. He's this is the precursor. He pulled pranks, like managing to program the home phone of somebody he didn't like each time the line was answered would be a recording asking for a deposit of 25 cents. So just little innocent but annoying pranks, but pretty high-level tech for the 70s. And as a teenager, he continued his obsession with electronics. He learned about ham radios. I don't know if you guys remember that. If I'm not mistaken, because it was a little bit before my time, ham radio is like, like a... I imagine like truckers talking to each other on almost like a walkie-talkie, but higher-level... But with a ham radio, he obtained an unrestricted FCC license. Like you need this to, to broadcast and listen. And he used it to listen on local police calls. Again, mischievous, yes. Destructive, not yet. But his first hack was when he broke into something called the ARC. It's 1978. ARC was a computer at the University of Southern California, USC. And this computer handled the school's administrative functions. And he figured out how to use a software vulnerability to gain access and just mess with the records. All he was doing was messing around. He said he wanted to see if he could do it. He compared it to chess, said you just want to win. And, and that's what it was about at that point. But I want you to keep in mind that timeline. Pac-Man wasn't even released until 1980. For your computer people, DOS wasn't even a thing until 1980. The first IBM personal computers weren't around until 1981. 
And the Commodore 64, the first accessible home computer for the everybody, for the everybody, wasn't even invented until 1982. Mitnick was hacking four years before anybody even really knew what a computer was, at least for home usage. So yeah, safe to say Mitnick was ahead of his time. But it's still just mischief at this point. It's, it's not even known as hacking, right? So over the next few years, Mitnick would hone his social engineering skills and grow his reputation, now starting to actually formally be known as a hacker. And he became legendary. There were these forums and underground boards, and his methods of gaining access were legendary. And he was known as somewhat of a, of a god in that, in that community. And they were a key part of what made him so successful at infiltrating systems. And his unique brand of hacking, again, it was called social engineering. It just aimed at tricking people into giving them information and access. And he was just having fun with it, right? He wasn't doing crazy stuff yet. But one challenge accomplished. You move on to the next thing. Turns out he gained illegal access to about 20,000 credit card numbers, including some belonging to then tech moguls. Caused millions of dollars to corporate computer operations, including Pac Bell. Stole software used for maintaining the privacy of the nascent wireless calls, the early mobile phones, and handling and changing billing information. And now, again, remember this concept is foreign. You're a high level computer person in, 19, in the 1980s you're not dealing with the same kind of security that we have now, not by a long shot. My dad was a computer audit specialist for the state of California, which means he had a computer in the mid eighties. He was never fiddling with passwords or protection software, this kind of stuff. And the threat of being hacked, I don't think ever crossed his desk, but these things that Mitnick was doing was striking the fear of God in people if corporations and wireless calls and billing information could be changed remotely by who knows who or who knows how you can bet. And again, I hearken back to what we just talked about the MGM people were running for the Hills in, in what was then a cybersecurity, no man's land. There was no cybersecurity. How are you protecting your system? It probably set back the mass adoption of computers by years. And now, these acts were so heinous. And am I exaggerating? No. He was included. Kevin Mitnick, the hacker, was placed on the top 10 of the FBI's most wanted list. The New York Times described Kevin Mitnick as the nation's most wanted computer outlaw. And so he went on the run. I mean... I'm not saying that's cool. Like I said, it's not personally violent or anything. I, in retrospect, dude was a fugitive. Okay. Think about this. Cause you got that prototype, that stereotype of the, the hacker computer nerd, but dude was on the run for more than two years. And part of his most spectacular crimes came during his attempts to evade capture by the authorities. In 1993, he gained control of the phone systems in California that enabled him to wiretap the FBI agents pursuing him, and he would disrupt and confuse their efforts to track him. At one point, when they raided what they thought was where Kevin Mitnick was living, they found an immigrant 
watching TV. Why that detail? That's just what's in the report. On another occasion, he used a radio scanner and software. Found that FBI agents had tracked him again and they were closing in. He fled the apartment he was staying in. And when the FBI arrived, they found a dozen donuts waiting for him. I mean, this dude, it's mischief. It's mischief. But on Christmas Day in 1994, he crossed the wrong guy. And hacking. I mean, this is subculture now. So Christmas in 1994, he stole emails from a fellow hacker. Pardon my pronunciation, but the name looks like Sutomu Shimomura. So he stole his emails and then Mitnick taunted him on a message board. So when Shimomura learned of the attack, he was on a, a cross-country ski trip, but he canceled the trip and he volunteered to the FBI to help track down Kevin Mitnick. So the New York Times said a duel on the nascent internet ensued. Shimomura accused Mitnick of violating the codes of the online community. It was a fierce war of the words and a war of hacking. But Shimomura got the last word. He used software that he designed and he reconstructed computer sessions and cell phone conversations. And he was able to locate Mitnick. So Mitnick was finally captured by the FBI and was charged with illegal use of telephone access device, computer fraud. They said he had access to corporate trade secrets worth millions of dollars. And the U.S. attorney, Kent Walker in San Francisco, said he was a very big threat. So Mitnick was arrested and it marked the end of his hacking career. His downfall was a result of his own ego. He left a trail of evidence, essentially, for, for a genius, for a fellow hacking genius, but it was a trail. So he was sentenced to five years in prison and pled guilty to all charges, which did earn him a reduced sentence. But no evidence emerged that Mitnick used the files for financial gain. Again, it was just mischief. And he defended the activities as high stakes, but harmless. And I wanted to find how ahead of the curve Mitnick really was. Again, even at the time of his capture, this is almost 20 years into his hacking career. This is February 1995. The computer age was still young. Windows hadn't even been released. Not Windows 95, the one we all know that opened the door, that opened the window. There was an international conversation, not just about hacking, but about the internet. We didn't know what it was or what it could be, but Mitnick had paved the way for something and it shined a light on vulnerability, on data breach, on hacking. And it really did set the tone for what we have 28 years later that we're talking about today. But now at least they have cybersecurity. And that also starts with Mitnick. Now, he's released from prison in 2000. He was prohibited from using a computer for three years. But he said he changed his ways and was going to use his expertise to turn his life around. So guess what he did? He became one of the first cybersecurity experts. And he founded a company called Know Before, which was the world's largest provider of security awareness training. It was a cybersecurity curriculum that he designed. And I mean, this is the expert, right? The criminal is the one who knows the other criminals next move. 
That training curriculum is used by more than 60,000 organizations today. Wonder if MGM Resorts is one of them. Probably not. But just as a perfect coda, the New York Times again in 2017 identified Mitnick, who had once baffled members of law enforcement, had once instilled fear into so much that he was in the top 10 FBI's most wanted. The New York Times referred to him as internet security expert Kevin Mitnick. Quite a long way he had come. The first and most famous hacker of all time from right here in Los Angeles. Who knew? All right. So, got to end on a, on a, Fun note, a travel note, do something note. If you're gonna do something, if you're gonna do one thing in LA this week, do this. Get away from the hacking. Get away from the cyber attacks. Leave your phone at home, or at least in the car, and go on a hike. But I'm not I'm not just talking hikes anywhere. A lot of great hikes in LA. That's a, that's gonna be in LA in a minute. There are a lot of great hikes in LA. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a specific place. I want to go back in time. Back in LA time, way back before hacking, cyber securities, computers, or even phones were a thing. I want to go back to the time of LA's oldest park. Talking about Legion Park. You might know it as that park you pass through on Stadium Way when you're going to Dodger Stadium. Or that park that somehow seems as big as Griffith Park around Dodger Stadium. But if you're geographically inclined, it's flanked by Legion Valley, Lincoln Heights, Chinatown and Echo Park. It is massive. It is LA's second biggest park. And it is its oldest. And I'm verifying it. Non-cyber attackable. No, but how did this area get to be LA's first park? That's a big deal. The official first park. Well, in 1886, the Los Angeles City Council dedicated an area just north of what is now Dodger Stadium as LA's first official park. At the time, it was known as Rock Quarry Hills because it was a rock quarry and it was considered undevelopable. And it was literally just hard rock. So you go to some areas there. I was just over there. You go to some areas there. You're like, oh, I get it. This is a rock quarry. But the city renamed it Elysian Park after Elysian Fields, which is where virtuous souls went to rest, according to Greek mythology. And the city charter granted protection to Elysian Park in perpetuity. That's why it still exists almost 140 years later. Now, going back thousands of years before that, of course, the indigenous Tongva, Gabrieleno, and Chumash people inhabited that area, including the rock quarry that became Elysian Park. And the Tongva community centered on Yangna, which was on the banks of the LA River, only minutes from the park's current border. So it's important to know that background. Because in August of 1769, the Portola Expedition, the first Europeans to see inland areas of California, they camped right near what was then Yangna, near the LA River, which is the southeastern corner of what is now Elysian Park. And there's even a historical landmark there. It's part of the Meadow Road entrance. When you go there, check that out. Again, I don't think we were, we celebrate our history, our deep history as much in LA and maybe it's not something to quote celebrate, but some to acknowledge and it's cool. There's the landmark there. Check that out when you go. But now back, back to the quote unquote modern area era. It became a park 
because the new the, the Los Angeles government at the time was trying to auction off any land they could use to generate revenue for the city. And that rock quarry hills, again, undevelopable hills, canyons, hard rock. It was deemed undesirable for development. And it was withdrawn from the public auction. They were considered worthless. Council people tried to give them away. According to a book, A History of California and Los Angeles and Its Environs from 1915, the city council could find no one to take that land off their hands, even for free. That's how, quote unquote, undesirable it was. But around the same time, again, that book was written in 1915, but that's about the 1870s that it's talking about. And by that time, America's passion for taming the wilderness shifted toward preservation. Yellowstone was the first national park in 1872 and other parks were soon following. So it was decided that Elysian Park would be L.A.'s first park. They wanted to retain its wild, natural character. And at one point it was native coast live oaks and black walnut trees, but they'd mostly been stripped. So all that was exposed was the wild grasses and the, the shrubbery and the, and the rock. So Mayor L.A. Mayor Henry Hazard personally led the crusade to start beautifying this undesirable patch of land. After it was made a park in 1886, by 1892, Hazard and the City Parks Commission and private groups planted 150,000 trees. Now, you go to this park, and this is why I'm telling you, go to Elysian Park, not just because of history. There's so many cool trees there, so many different trees. In fact, some trees that you don't see anywhere else in Los Angeles. Okay, I mean, there are deodar cedars, live oaks, pines, cypress, pepper trees, but just these beautiful, gorgeous trees. And... In 1893, the L.A. Horticultural Society created the city Arboretum, which is right in that Elysian Park, specifically Chavez Ravine area. And the Western Canyon became something of an exotic forest, which again, check this out. Like, it's really cool because you see people grilling, you see people playing soccer and there's awesome baseball. There's so many things nestled in this park. But back to history. 1895, the Avenue of the Palms, that that avenue that you see along Stadium Way when you take that little turn, the right turn to go hang out with like the carne asada and just like chill like that. Those palms were planted. This is an alley of date palms that are like 120 plus years old. It's really, really cool. And all that, despite the reputation is difficult to develop, people would start to move in. At least on the hilly terrain that the park didn't cover. There was a large valley in the hills, Chavez Ravine. And Chavez, by the way, was a former city councilman that was the original owner of much of that land, but did nothing with it and handed over the council. They didn't know what to do with it. But three communities flourished, Bishop, La Loma, and Palo Verde. And most of those residents, you've heard this story, you've heard me tell this story. Most of them were Mexican-American Angelinos, and it was almost a rural lifestyle in that, in that park. And think about that when you're there. I mean, you look, you get up on some of the high areas of the park, you could see that. You're like, seeing these old photos of the neighborhoods. But this unfortunate narrative, the reality, in the 1950s, the city was evicting the residents to make way for the Elysian Park Heights housing project that never materialized because it became Dodger stadium, but homes were demolished. Neighborhoods were bulldozed and close knit families were scattered. It's terrible. You've heard me tell that story, but it's part of that Elysian park history. And it's important, especially as you're there and exploring 
And those cities did promise residents that they'd be able to move back in. It was never built because, again, Brooklyn Dodgers relocated to L.A. When the team identified the ravine with its proximity to downtown and by then two major freeways as the preferred location for their new stadium. So 1959, the last residents were evicted, made way for Dodger Stadium. So sad, it's happy, it's a conflict. I've discussed this before. But again, Elysian Park is real Los Angeles history and it's important. And City Hall land grabs ensued. They've wanted to do development, but the Citizens Committee to Save Elysian Park was established in 1965 by Grace Simons. And she used her experience as a journalist to become a public policy warrior and stop most of the development at least. So Elysian Park, again, I pick it, I choose it because it's unique there's so many different elements. The police academies over there, the Barlow Respiratory Hospital, that's going to be an LA in a minute uh, episode. Sanitarium, a World War I memorial grove, a Jewish cemetery, former Jewish cemetery, and something called the Elysian Park Treasure. The old myth said there is a treasure of gold buried in Elysian Park. Again, upcoming episode, but explore all those things. And enjoy those trees and that hike and that park, Elysian Park, above all else. It really is a beautiful place and a historic Los Angeles place. And at least while you're there, you're not going to get hacked. Thank you for listening to episode 32 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. I appreciate you. Really, really thank you for listening. And just hearing about our beloved city, I'm learning. I hope you're learning. I'm having a ton of fun i hope you're having fun if you like the podcast please 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 give me the five star rating you're probably sick of hearing me say it but i mean it and if you leave a review that is so helpful because it gets me in the algorithm i already know i'm like higher up than i used to be so this is great we are marching up the charts please give the five stars in the rating and do not forget to follow subscribe and share thank you for supporting in a minute with evan love it all right y'all it's been a minute Thank <laughs> you.